Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, especially our new first-time listeners. We can be heard around the world at wagp.net 24-7, or you can hear us here at 88.7 FM. And if you have a question, maybe over a passage of Scripture you're studying, you're seeking clarification or application or just wisdom on how to face some event in life, if we can help by God's grace, we'll do what He allows us to do. Again, the local 843 exchange is 525-1859. Or if you are more comfortable, you can email us here directly into the studio. The email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. And let me just say, too, that we always give priority to live callers. So if you call in live, you'll get your question definitely answered. Sometimes people send in questions, and it takes us a month or two to actually get to it because we get so many every week. But when your question is submitted, when it's answered, you'll get a text message or an email letting you know it was answered, and you can click on the link and and listen to it. Now, with that said, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. All right, Pastor Carl, looks like we have a live caller. Uh, Good morning, caller. You're live with Pastor Carl. Yes, thank you. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Brogy, for um, all you do. Appreciate your uh, ministry. Thank you for your encouragement. I appreciate your prayers, too. Thank um, you. Just real quick, um, one quick question, and then my real question is, um, what Bible atlas would you recommend? And then also, um, I've had this question for probably two years. I've been wondering about this. Is There are some promises in the Bible, such as Psalm 91, where it says, No evil will befall you. No plague will come near your tent. Um Proverbs 10, the Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger. There's different promises like that in the Bible, and I always wonder about those because obviously Christians do experience evil, and they do experience hunger, and and I think I've heard you talk about there's different types of promises, so I've never understood that, so I'm just hoping um, you can give me some clarity on that. Yeah, no, thank you. It's a, it's a good question, and uh, in terms of your Bible atlas, uh, I guess I would probably suggest the Holman Bible Atlas if you wanted to buy a hard copy. Uh, these are also available for computer download, and you can print out the specific maps and needs you have. There's an advantage, obviously, to have it. The Zondervan Atlas is also, I have both of those, the Holman Bible Atlas and the Zondervan Atlas. Those are probably the two best that are available. When it comes to um, passages of Scripture that you read, it's important to always ask to whom it was written. Is it a specific promise to a specific group? Uh, Is it uh, descriptive or is it prescriptive? There are a lot of passages in Scripture that are descriptive, maybe of a particular people. Like God said, look, your shoes won't wear out. Your clothes will last for how long? Forty years which is pretty remarkable. I just uh, wore out a pair of shoes in six months, and I bought a new pair yesterday to walk in. And so uh, 
obviously that was a unique promise. There's many details in Scripture that are merely a description, say, of events, of people that aren't necessarily something that we are to follow, like Abraham lied about his wife Sarah, and uh, he took Isaac on top of uh, Mount Moriah to sacrifice him. Obviously, those are descriptive of Abraham's life, but they're not prescriptive for believers today. And so um, Paul, for instance, in Acts 24, uh, I was just thinking about this yesterday, where he uh, went into the temple to present alms. Obviously, we couldn't even do that today if we wanted to, but the temple was up and functioning until 70 A.D. But he did that not because he was trying to follow an Old Testament uh, command, but he was trying to be all things to all men that he might win some. So certainly there are some uh, promises in Scripture that are hard clasp and how will you know if something's a promise or if something is a principle? You have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So, for instance, when the Scripture says, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it, is that a principle or is that a promise? I would take it as a promise. Why? Because of Scripture interpreting Scripture. Now, there was some creative pastors who kind of psychologize that. Why? Because their kids turned out crummy. Uh, and they said, well, the way there is a, a, a child's personality. So train up a child according to his personality. If he's mechanically skilled and that's obvious, then develop that. When he's old, he'll continue in that. And the argument was from a sister language called Akkadian, and it had nothing to do with the Hebrew text, much less the context of Proverbs, where Proverbs deals with the way direct, the way of righteousness versus the way of a fool. And so he's basically saying, train up a child in the way of righteousness, and when he's old, he'll continue in that. It's not saying, well, your child's going to go out and sow oats for 20 years, but because I brought him to church and Sunday school, he'll come back someday. It has nothing to do with that. It's saying just the opposite. When he's old, he'll, he'll continue in that way. And again, we have New Testament uh, admonitions. For instance, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that it's a good thing for a man to aspire to the office of elder. Well, God doesn't ask you to aspire to something you can't obtain, and so he's, he's admonishing uh, that if someone is an elder in the church, that he has raised his children well or is raising his children well. They're either under control because they are a young elder like Titus, or they have uh, come to faith. And so, and so either one, Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3. Th those are principles. God didn't give us children to uh, feed the fires of hell. He gave us children so that if we bring them up in the admonition of the Lord, we can raise godly children. So there's, sometimes there is a principle, a general principle. So when you deal with suffering and trials, obviously, um, God's word is clear. Like, for instance, in Proverbs, it says, um, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. That's a general principle. How do I know? Because there are times when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord in your promised persecution. But as a general principle, if we're walking with the Lord, God can give us even favor with our enemies. But there's also the promise of persecution Woe to all those who speak, um, woe to you if all men speak well of you, for so they spoke of the false prophets who went before you. Now, that's a pretty 
pointed statement that if everybody speaks well of me, I mustn't be doing what God has called me to do as a believer. Uh, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. I hope that helps. Let's go to another live call that's waiting. All right, uh, Anthony, good morning. You are live with Pastor Carl. Go ahead with your question. Yes, good morning, Dr. Brogan. Hey, good morning, Um, Anthony. Good to hear your voice. After Church Sunday, Sunday, I mentioned something to you, and if you could say something about it, I think a lot of people are being deceived about this black Hebrew doctrine thing they got out about God is finished with the Jews and so much other crazy stuff. Have you heard about this? Yeah, in fact, I was in uh, Greenville, uh, South Carolina, and I was confronted by some black Hebrew Israelites, as they refer to themselves. And uh, it was very interesting what, again, is always indicative of someone who doesn't know the Lord is they did not even know how to be saved by grace alone through faith alone. But this term black Hebrews or black Israelites um, refers to a group of of African descent people who claim to have usurped the place of Israel. Now, does that mean a Jew could not be black? No, a Jew could be black, very much black. In fact, Solomon obviously uh, married quite a number of wives. Um, Obviously, I don't think he slept with all um, 1,000 concubines and 700 wives, but I do think he made a lot of marriages in order to Um, make political alliances and to bring peace into the kingdom. Look, I married your daughter, you can't attack me, kind of mentality. But certainly he was a polygamist. With that said, he had black African offspring. With that said, uh, the Jewish people themselves recognize um, the Ethiopian Jews. They did a tremendous airlift in, uh, I think it was in the late, early early 1980s. Don't quote me on that. But um, it was unprecedented in terms of the number of uh, Jewish people uh, who were African living in Ethiopian, Ethiopia, who were lifted out of Ethiopia to Israel, and it was it was just a phenomenal thing. It was it was in it was in ninety one. It was in ninety one, and they they took like fifteen thousand uh, black Jews. And when you go to Israel today, I can immediately spot an Ethiopian Jew just like I can typically tell the difference between a Ukrainian and a Russian, typically, not always, because there's certain facial structures and features, just like you can tell the difference between a Filipino and a Japanese person and a Chinese person. Uh, there are facial distinctions that happen. So, um, but, but that's not what this particular group is teaching. They're saying, one, that only black people are true Jews, that all the people who are living in Israel, in terms of the various um, more European-styled whitish, but they're really not even white. Most Jews have more olive skin, um, that they're not even Jewish. And again, they have a doctrine that basically is a very oppressive towards white people. It's rooted in hatred. I don't know how else to say it. Just like the Klan was rooted in hatred towards black people, uh, this is reverse clanism. It's so-called black Hebrews or black Israelites who basically hate white people. And, you know, and I, and I tried to witness to these guys and I said, look, I don't, I don't have anything against black people. People know me, know that I'm not a racist. And, 
And um, but but you guys have a, a deep rooted hatred in your heart. And I'm not sure how you can understand the scripture, because the scripture says the one who claims to know the Lord and hates his brother, he's a murderer. And you know that no murderer has an, an inheritance in the coming kingdom and has embraced eternal life. And so if my heart is driven by hatred, one, I really misunderstand the gospel or have not personally embraced it. And two, if I understand Scripture correctly, and the Scripture is clear in Acts 17, we're from one blood, that eventually uh, we're all related. We're all from Adam. We're all descendants of Adam, and then we're all descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and the three families who came off the ark, and of course, the various racial distinctions developed at the Tower of Babel. So when they come off the ark and the world is repopulated, instead of spreading, uh, be fruitful, multiply, and spread, fill the earth, they, they, they populated to an extent, but they didn't fill the earth. They decided to stay in one place, and they got really braggadocious in their thinking and uh, built probably a ziggurat of sorts and sought to worship man, and God confused them. Babel, I always think it's interesting, this language program is called Babel. I'm, I'm assuming the founders know that the word Babel in Hebrew means confusion, uh, though they're telling me in three weeks I can speak, you know, conversely in a particular language. But, you know, as you married within your language group, which you were forced to do, if you marry within a region long enough, you develop certain distinctives physically and that's how the races develop but we're all from one blood we all go back to adam and eve the evolutionist denies that and uh, that's why hitler saw jews and black people as inferior and uh, that they had not evolved to uh, the aryan race as he would describe it anyway good question but again you can always start by just asking some basic questions Hey, let me ask you, you, you claim to follow the Bible and believe the Bible. How do you think a person gets into heaven? None of these guys, there's four guys there in the streets in Greenville, and I don't think they thought that, you know, the guy that they were going to confront was maybe knowledgeable of the Bible, but it was providential. And none of these men knew how to get to heaven. And, of course, I shared the love of God with them, and there was one young man who I could tell was listening. And I believe God brought me there for him. He was listening, and he was processing what I was saying. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question for today's Bible line. Uh, we have another live caller, Pastor Carl. Uh, good morning, caller. You're live on the Bible line. Hello, good morning. Uh, uh, you got to turn down your radio if you have your radio off because it will confuse you. You still there? All right, we lost them. They can call back if they want. Let's go to the next question. All right, our next question is from Bill Stevens out of uh, Virginia. He says, I came across a scripture in Isaiah that has left me unknowing what it meant, particularly the blessing of Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the works of my hands. Are they his instruments and tools? Uh, can Dr. Brogy shed some discernment and teaching on his, also on Isaiah chapter 19, verses 23 through 24? All right, let me, let me turn there. Um, in Isaiah 19, 23 and 24, it says, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria. 
and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth. Now, again, context is everything, so we need to understand the context of of these two verses you're asking about. Um, Understand that this phrase, in that day, is used extensively through Isaiah, but it's used throughout the Old Testament through the various prophets, I think some 50 times, if I remember, Um, and it's always in reference to the future day. Uh, to what's uh, commonly referred to as the day of the Lord. And when you think of the day of the Lord, there's a dark side to it, and there's a bright side followed by a dark side. It mimics a biblical day. A biblical day starts at sunset, and it goes through sunset the next day. And so when the Bible speaks of the day of the Lord, very often Christians just think of the dark side of it, you know, the the, the shadows of the tribulation, they get worse and worse and worse. And so the first half of the tribulation period is bad. It's called the wrath of the Lamb in Revelation 6. But then when that mid-trigger point happens and the Antichrist goes in and defiles the temple, Jesus said when that event happens, you haven't seen anything yet. And it gets super bad. And so you go from the seal judgments in the uh, first half to the trumpet and the bold judgments. And it's like a rheostat being turned up. And so God is going to use that future day to bring about the conversion of the nations. And so um, Scripture here speaks. Let me just back it up a little bit. It says, in that day, just to give you the flow, I'm looking at verse 16. In that day, the Egyptians will come, become like women, and they will tremble and be in dread because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts which he is going to wave over them. The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, you could say, which he is uh, purposing against them. And so again, this is descriptive of the tribulation period. And remember, the tribulation period is designed to bring Israel front and center. And so there's 144,000 Jewish missionaries slash evangelists that are preaching the gospel to the world. And there's two witnesses on the Temple Mount whose ministry mimics that of Elijah and Moses. And they do fantastic miracles that the entire world witnesses. And so Israel is front and center. They become a terror. But through the ministry of these 144,000, there is an untold number. John likens them to the sand of the seashore of folks who are converted. And so he continues here in verse 18. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan and swearing allegiance to, to the Lord, to Yahweh of hosts. And, um, and so, he, again, he's describing these Egyptian cities that will speak Hebrew out of deference to the Jews. And again, this has never happened, but it is going to happen. Uh, It's amazing to me when you go to the Middle East, you meet um, Egyptians, you meet uh, so-called Palestinians, you meet Syrians, you meet all these people from different nations, and most of them know Hebrew. Uh, They know and understand Hebrew along with their own mother tongue. Well, when the millennial reign of the Messiah comes, they will speak Hebrew out of honor to the Jewish people. And that honor that's given to the Jewish people, really out of gratitude, uh, is also highlighted in the prophet Zechariah. Let me keep reading. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt, 
and a pillar to the Lord near its border. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. And they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors, and he will send them a savior and a champion, and he will deliver them. Again, this is the initial part of the tribulation period. Egyptians are being converted in mass today. There's a small community of Coptic Christians, many of whom actually have the plan of salvation, some of whom are more like Roman Catholics. They're Christianized but not born again. And, of course, it's the Coptics that were being beheaded by the Muslims. There's a deep-seated Muslim population that hates Jews and it hates Christians. And so if you remember those photos three or four years back where you had Coptic believers, born-again believers, uh, on a beach, and you either confess uh, Allah is the one true God or in renounce your Christianity or you lose your head. And they lost their heads. And so, again, this is the context. This is the flow. So when he says here in verse 23, in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria. He's talking here about a peace between Israel, Egypt, and Assyria. Uh, they've been at odds all the way from the time of the Exodus. And yet there'll be a highway of trade and travel with these three nations because people will live for a thousand years during the time of um, the millennial reign when it goes from dark to bright. And these three nations will celebrate the great work of redemption that God brought through a Jewish man named Yeshua, who's the God man. So that's the context. So Isaiah will, throughout his prophecy, sometimes focus on uh, the first coming of Messiah. Sometimes he'll focus on the second coming of Messiah. Sometimes in a singular passage, he'll focus on both. So that's kind of the flow. But when you see in that day, that should be um, a ringer to you to pay attention that we're looking towards the end of time, either the dark side of the tribulation, and again, it mimics a biblical day. The tribulation gets progressively dark. The Son of God who's compared to Malachi to the S-U-N, comes back from heaven. It's a bright and glorious day as he rules and reigns for a thousand years. But because there are tribulation saints, Jew and Gentile alike, who enter into the millennial reign in their natural bodies, and they live an extended period of time, they'll have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and not all of those will respond to Jesus, which is why he will have to rule with a rod of iron. But Satan, who's been bound for a full thousand years, will be loosed at the end of the thousand years. He'll tempt the nations that, again, are described as the sand of the seashore going up against God's Messiah ruling in Jerusalem. So it gets dark again. And then Jesus immediately puts it down, the rebellion, and it gets bright forever and ever and ever. So good, good question. All right, 843-525-1859. Our next question is from Keith out of Kentucky. Good morning, Keith. You are live with Pastor Carl. Uh, good morning, Dr. Brogy. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I have a question on uh, in the book of Revelation on the 24 elders. Yes. Uh, I know that in Matthew 19 it speaks of uh, the 12 sitting on thrones in the millennial reign. Yes. Uh, will Peter and the 12, is it possible any of those could be sitting with the uh, 24 elders? I don't think so. Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, I really don't think so. I think what you have here are elders, and certainly apostles were elders. 
not all elders are apostles, but apostles were certainly elders, and Peter affirms that in 1 Peter 5. He calls himself a fellow elder, and so if Peter was the first pope, he didn't know anything about it. But with that said, um, there seems to be a distinctive group here, and they're called the 24 elders, and they're representative in many ways of the church. He says in four one after these things, metatata, uh, after what things? After what he has just recorded, in fact, Revelation one nineteen in many ways is the key to unlocking the whole book of Re- Revelation. God put the key in the front door. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, the things which will take place, metatata, after these things. And so that follows all the way through Revelation. He writes in chapter 1 about the things that he had seen, and he has this incredible vision of the glorified, exalted Christ, then the things that are, and so we have an address to seven churches, and then the things that will take place after these things. And so after the church age is finished, after these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place here again, metatata, after these things. So he's speaking about after the church has been removed, a door is open, the church is brought in, uh, at the second coming, Uh, We don't meet the Lord in the air. We come back with him. At the rapture, we meet the Lord in the air. At the second coming, Jesus comes all the way to the earth. And so we'll not all sleep. We'll be caught up. And from the Latin Bible, we get our word rapture. Sometimes people say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible. Well, it's not in the English Bible, but it's in the Latin Bible. But that doesn't make it an untruth. There are a lot of words that we use that aren't found in the English Bible. Uh, Tertullian coined the word Trinity. Uh, It's not found in the Bible, but every true Orthodox Christian uh, affirms that there's one God who lives in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Uh, The word Bible is not in the Bible for that matter, but the word rapture, the catching up, the harpazo takes place here. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he was sitting like a jasper stone and sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. These are representative of the church. And of course, these 24 elders, we're told in verse 10 of this chapter, will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him, who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Were there are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed. And that's what we're going to do in heaven when we are rewarded. And it's interesting because in the New Testament epistles, God describes the rewards of believers in terms of crowns. There are at least five crowns that are listed in the New Testament. There may be many more, but five certainly that are, in many ways, uh, they cover much of the activity that we do as believers. There's a crown, for instance, given to the person who longs for the return of Christ. Paul speaks of that in his last letter. Why would God give a crown for that? Because everyone who fixes hope upon that event purifies himself as he is pure. It has a life-changing effect 
when we study prophecy. It motivates us to live godly. We know that we're living with our eye on eternity and so on. There's a crown given to those who faithfully share the gospel. And as you would expect, because the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost, he's commissioned every believer to go with that message. And so as we go, God rewards us in eternity for our faithfulness to share the gospel. And so these are representative here of the church. Of course, the apostles are promised 12 thrones that they will sit on. And the 12 thrones that they sit on are involved in judging the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Um, so entirely different thrones, different contexts, uh, different, different message. Good question. Let's go to the next. Our next question is from a listener in Walterboro, South Carolina. They write, um, I am trying to convince, a, I have a friend who is trying to convince his pastor that if one is truly saved, they cannot lose their salvation. And if one says that they have lost their salvation, they were never really saved to begin with. What can this parishioner say to the pastor? Well, again, uh, your authority, of course, is Scripture. Everything that we believe is based on something. You either read it in a book or someone told you or you made it up, but just believing it doesn't make it true. And again, I think what's interesting is for nearly 1,500 years of church history, no one believed that you could lose your salvation. So that's relatively new, I suppose, in the course of um, 2,000 years of church history. It's relatively new to say that you can lose your salvation. So along comes Jacobus Arminius. is a Dutch pastor and theologian, and he certainly wants to counter some of the hyper-Calvinism of John Calvin, but some of the things that Calvinists believe are true, as some of the things that Arminians believe are true. The Arminian and the Calvinists alike would affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, the deity of Christ, his substitutionary atonement, the literal resurrection, the literal return of Christ from heaven. But uh, Arminius believed that you could lose your salvation, and I think he was obviously in error. And so he elevated the will of man, really, over the deadness that he should own in his trespasses and sins. Paul says we're dead and our trespasses and sins. So a dead man can't respond. God must take the initiative. So Arminius was right in that God takes the initiative with everyone. The Calvinists would focus largely on, quote-unquote, the elect. But he was certainly wrong by saying that once you decide as an act of the will to receive Christ, that you could later on as an act of the will lose your salvation. No, it didn't begin with you, and it doesn't end with you. It began with God. You were still a free moral agent. And so, for instance, he says in 1 John chapter 2, children, it is the last hour, and just as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know it's the last hour. And so when John uses this phrase, last hour, he is affirming the imminent return of Christ. In the New Testament, writers lived with the expectancy that Christ could return at any moment because they believed that nothing prophetically needed to be fulfilled for the church to be caught up. And that after the church was raptured or caught up, any prophecies that had not yet been fulfilled for the second coming would be fulfilled in the next seven plus years that would follow. 
the amazing thing is that we live in a day where we're seeing the prophecies fulfilled for the second coming, which you know makes the rapture that much closer. In either case, the spirit of Antichrist has been at work since the ascension of Christ in Pentecost. And so he speaks of a many antichrists. He's not speaking about the antichrist here, but many antichrists. In fact, he'll say a little bit later in verse 22, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is, and then he goes to the articular form, the antichrist. And so there is a coming antichrist who will deny that Jesus is God, and he will claim, in essence, to take the place of Jesus. But let me keep reading here in 1 John 2, 19. These who are false teachers, who are governed not by the Spirit of God, but by the Spirit of Antichrist, they went out from us. So in other words, they were a part of the church. They were confessing Christians, but they went out from us. But they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. In other words, he's saying the fact that they ended up renouncing the Christian faith, this is called apostasy. An apostate in the New Testament is not someone who's been regenerated, someone who's been born again and then renounces Christ. No, it's someone who comes to the edge of conversion but doesn't step into the kingdom. And so there are people who join churches who God alone knows. They know all the right words, and you have to start there. Someone can't confess salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in God the Son alone, then you know they're not saved. But assuming they at least know the right words and their lifestyle initially is not denying that, sometimes people come to Community Bible Church and they're converted, and yet they are coming from a background where, say, they're living in immorality. And all I would say to them is, well, for, for you to become a member of this local assembly, since you're living in an area that actually would demand church discipline of someone who was a member, you have to show the fruit of repentance. And so when you move out or you whatever you do, and this relationship is severed or if you know, you haven't been married and you're going to get married. Okay, whatever you do, fine. Then you can come and join and we'll consider baptizing you. But again, assuming someone knows the right words and they show the fruit of repentance, uh, then you receive them into the local assembly. Hey, look, in Acts chapter 8, Simon the sorcerer was baptized by leaders in the church. Why? Because they were convinced he was a believer. But when Peter and the apostles came down, because it was a unique setting where the Spirit of God was given not at the moment of conversion, but with these Samaritan believers after conversion to uh, preserve the unity of the church and for the apostles to put their hand of blessing and stamp of approval on what God was doing amongst the Samaritans. Otherwise, you could have potentially had had two churches. They received the Spirit after, and it becomes apparent that Simon the sorcerer was not converted. Wait a minute, they baptized him. They did. They took him at his word, but his lifestyle ended up denying that he was a real believer, and so Peter accuses him of being in the bondage of iniquity. So these who go out means that they had never really been of, of us because if they remained with us, and so the doctrine of perseverance, perseverance of the saints uh, in the tulip. Uh, acrostic, 
Uh, P stands for perseverance of the saints. The Calvinists are right on perseverance of the saints. And by perseverance, they're not just affirming the doctrine of eternal security, but they are underscoring the fact that if someone is saved, if someone has become a member of the elect, and the elect or the whosoever will, and the non-elect or the whosoever won't, then they will persevere. So Jesus speaks about he who overcomes, he who perseveres. Even in the Olivet Discourse, the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. You're not saved by perseverance, but if you are saved, you will persevere. And that will become apparent, especially during the time of the tribulation period, because for many people who confess Jesus, they lose their heads. And so the fact that they went out from us really indicates they were not of us to begin with. So if you have it, you can't lose it. If you lost it, you never really had it to begin with. Jesus said in John 6, 47, he that believes in me has eternal life. Not will have, but has this moment. Because eternal life is not simply heaven. Eternal life is an unbroken friendship with God where you're no, no longer considered his enemy, but you're considered his friend. You tell me how you can lose something that's eternal, and I'll tell you how you can lose salvation. Eternal life, this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God in Christ whom thou hast sent. Jesus will say in John 10, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Again, if you know Christ, if you've been born again, this is eternal life, that they may know you, not just know that God exists, not just know that Jesus is God the Son, but you have a personal relationship through the regenerating work of the Spirit. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me. We don't earn, I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So you don't hold on to God. God holds on to you. And that's why in Ephesians it says, for instance, that when you hear the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you receive the Spirit as a earnest is a down payment. You are sealed for this coming day of redemption. Jesus said, I'm going to send the Spirit, and he'll be in you forever. And so Paul can say to the Philippians, he that began a good work in you will complete it. Uh, what God started, he will complete. And so when as an act of the will, as a free moral agent, you say yes to Jesus, you are making an eternal decision. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has right now, this moment, eternal life. And he does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. There's a judgment for the believer. We call it the Bema. Uh, the judgment of the just. But here he's talking about the great white throne judgment, and no believers will stand there. Only unbelievers will be present. And so what this caller might want to do would be to go to searchthescriptures.org, type in basic discipleship, and the first in a series of at least 21 of the 45 weeks that we teach here at Community Bible Church every single Sunday, we call it the Discovery Class. Online, it's called uh, Basic Discipleship, and get the handout on eternal security. And I walk through how the Father secures us, how God the Son secures us, and how God the Holy Spirit secures us for all of eternity. I walk through about 25 verses there's over 150 verses in the New Testament that teach the doctrine of eternal security. 
but maybe some person will come up and say, well, what about Hebrews 6, or what about this verse? Or, well, there's about 8 or 10, depending how you count them, because some are repeated twice, that seemingly at first glance seem to affirm that you can lose your salvation. For instance, a popular verse that is often quoted in loss of salvation would be uh, Luke 8 in verse 13. Those on the rocky soil are those who hear. When they hear, they receive the word with joy. They have no firm root. They believe for a while. In time of temptation, fall away. And they'd say, there it is. This person was saved. They believed. And then they fall away. Well, remember, when you look at the parable of the sower in the, par- in the parallel accounts in both Matthew and in Mark, it's apparent that Jesus in the first three soils is describing why various unbelievers do not respond to the gospel. And in the fourth soil, how someone who responds with a genuine heart decision bears fruit, some more than others, some 30, some 60, some 100, but all bear fruit. And I read the Lucan account because he uniquely adds in the parable of the sower where the seed fell among the thorns, these are those that fell on the rocky soil, how they believe for a while. But remember, every time you see the word believe, it's not always in reference to saving faith. The demons believe and tremble. And so you have to look at it contextually. These are people who give intellectual assent. So there's people who come into the church. They say, I've received Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone. And a year later, two years later, they renounce the Christian faith. They become a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, a Buddhist, a Hindu. They never had it to begin with. It was emotional only, intellectual only, but it was never as a decision of the will. So listen to that message. It's three hours of teaching on the eternal security of the believer. And I deal with some misnomers concerning eternal security that there are people who say, well, you know, I'm going to heaven and God saved me forever so I can just sleep with this woman as much as I want to because I'm going to heaven. I might not have much reward, but I'm going to heaven. That's just nonsense. Those are pseudo-Christians, fake Christians, never really been born-again Christians. So we, we do theology not by experience. We don't go into the local church and say, well, there were five people here in the last 15 years who were members and now renounce Christ, therefore you can lose your salvation. Now, that's what Pentecostals do. They do theology by experience. Experience is to be subservient to the authority of Scripture. Experience must always be measured in light of what the Scripture says. That's our authority, and you evaluate your theology in light of your experience. So you have all these people who are being you know, shafted by, you know, Benny Hinn and T.D. Jakes and Joel Olstein and all these fake teachers who are very experiential in their theology, and they've put experience over the authority of Scripture. Good question. Let's go to the next. 843-525-1859 if you have a question for today's Bible line. Our next question comes from Sarah. She writes, I have a close friend who has been suffering in their marriage. Their spouse has been unfaithful with the same person for several years and has left the home, leaving the spouse and child. There have been endless promises of wanting wanting to restore the marriage, and each time the unfaithful spouse keeps getting caught in their lies. My friend has been faithfully in prayer and fighting for their marriage for several years as they felt God was telling them it wasn't over yet. However, with the constant mental, emotional abuse and lying, 
my friend is now considering filing for divorce after years of everyone telling them to do so. They are heartbroken about leaving their child without one parent and leaving the only partner they've ever been with. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15 has been quoted to them many times in an effort to push them to file and find a new partner. While the grounds for divorce are there, can they biblically consider a new partner in the future? Well, 1 Corinthians uh, 7 and verse 15 is often removed from the context of 1 Corinthians 7 and the broad teaching. When you come to 7.1, he opens the chapter by saying, concerning the things about which you wrote. And so they wrote a letter to Paul, and beginning in chapter 7 through the end of the book, he begins to tick off their questions one by one by one. He's just dealt, for instance, with the issue of singleness. He said it's great to be single if that's something that God has gifted you to be. The norm is for most of us to be married. Uh, But then when he comes to verse 10, he says, But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through the believing, her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they're holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now, there's an interesting interchange here. In verse 10, he says, but to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. In other words, what Paul is saying in verse 10 is what I'm about to tell you didn't originate with me. This is what the Lord, again, articular, hey, Corios, meaning Jesus, Um, This is what Jesus taught. But to the rest, I say in verse 12, not the Lord, meaning this is not a subject that Jesus addressed in his public ministry, but I'm going to speak on his behalf. And by the way, with the same authority, because these guys were promised the ability to write scripture and to speak with the same authority. And so while the red letter editions of the Bible are helpful, if you're flipping through and you're oh, yeah, I was looking for this uh, statement Jesus made, and your eye goes to it on the page. Remember, the red letters are no more inspired than the, the black and white letters, and that's important. And, of course, that became a big point of contention between Catholics and Protestants. Lay that aside. Where did Jesus say this? To the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the husband should not leave her wife, leave his, her, her husband. Where did he say that? He said it based on the teachings that he gave on the subject of marriage and divorce. So, for instance, in Mark chapter 10, uh, Jesus makes this incredible statement. He said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. If she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. By the way, this same passage, this same uh, incident, that took place beyond the Jordan when the Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him is also found in Matthew chapter 19. The only exception is that there's a quote-unquote an exception clause. 
and it doesn't read the way most people read it. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another, except for adultery and, um, and marries another, commits adultery. It doesn't say that. It says whoever divorces his wife except for porneia and marries another commits moikeia. He uses two different uh, Greek words, and it's found only in Matthew because he's dealing with the subject of betrothal because you're considered husband and wife when you're betrothed. Even to this day in the Jewish economy, when someone is betrothed, they're called husband and wife, and the betrothal typically lasted a year. But if during that betrothal period someone had been unfaithful, because the marriage contract, quote-unquote, had not been fulfilled, then you were allowed a right of divorce. And that's the situation that Joseph, who's called the husband of Mary, who had zero relationship with her physically, finds her pregnant, and being a righteous man wanting to obey the law, he's going to put her away secretly so that she's not disgraced. There is no exception in Mark, because uh, Gentiles to whom Mark is written did not practice betrothal. In Luke's gospel, in Luke 16 and verse 18, uh, God makes a similar statement. And there, it, Jesus, uh, again, he's, he's dealing with um, the Pharisees and who tried to violently break their way into the kingdom and that they didn't want to come on the grounds of the king. They wanted to come their own way. And so they thought that they were righteous in God's sight. And Jesus reminded them that the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, were proclaimed until John, John the Baptist. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. So they thought they could manipulate the law and be righteous. And so then he reminded them that everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who's divorced from a husband commits adultery. He's making it plain that you can say you don't commit adultery, but then you don't like your wife anymore and you want to trade her in for a new model. And he was peeling back their false sense of security. So Jesus gave this instruction. With that said, in light of your question, he's very plain here. He said that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, why would she leave? Maybe her husband's sleeping around with other women, and she's afraid of disease that would enter her own body. Maybe her husband is hurting her physically. Maybe her husband is hurting the children. And so she sees under the wisdom of the elders of the church as she sought counsel that she needs to leave. But if she does, what are her options? She must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And if the shoe's on the other foot, the husband should not divorce his wife. That's what God says. So there's a time for separation. And so, but the, the, the focus is that you're praying for reconciliation. So it's not over unless your husband divorces you against your will and he remarries. And then there's no possibility for reconciliation. And, of course, that's the context of verse 15, that if the unbelieving one leaves, there he's dealing with if you're in a mixed marriage. Look, if he's willing to live with you, if, if she's willing to live with him, stick together. Why? Because through your testimony, you might win them to the Savior and have an impact on their life. But if they leave, well, you're not under bondage. Does that mean that you are free to remarry? Well, keep reading. Verse 39, the chapter ends a wife is bound as long as her husband lives. But if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord, only another believer. 
Again, this is consistent with what the Apostle Paul taught when he illustrates our relationship to the law in Romans chapter 7. He says, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning her husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so she is not an adulteress, though she is joined or married to another man. So... Stick it out unless you're being threatened, your life, your health, um, but then separate, and your goal in separating is reconciliation. Sometimes when you draw a line in the sand, you say, husband, I love you, but I'm not going to allow these children to be hurt or for me to be physically abused or for you to bring some kind of STD into our bedroom, so I'm moving out but I am willing to reconcile when you get your life right. That's the spirit that you're supposed to go in. And, of course, in this day of throwaway marriages, you'll get all kinds of Christian counsel. Look, it's not until a guy by the name of Erasmus who convinced some of the Reformers that adultery after marriage canceled the uh, agreement and allowed the innocent party to remarry. No one believed that for 1,500 years of church history. Why is that? Just like with Arminius, no one believed you could lose your salvation for 1,500 years of salvation. Why is that? Well, if it's new, it's not true. And I think he had misrepresented the Scripture. Anyway, we're about out of time, but we're glad that you could join us today for the Bible line, and I hope that... You will walk with Christ today, and if you don't have a church home, I want to invite you this Sunday to Community Bible Church. We meet at 9.15 and 11 o'clock. We also have campuses in Jasper County and in Aiken County, South Carolina. You can go to communitybiblechurch.us for meeting times and places. God bless you. Light 88.1.